Matthew 5.1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Well, hey, everyone. I'm Cam, if I don't know you, one of the elders here. Thanks so much for being here on this wonderful afternoon. Um, this morning, uh, something really weird happened as I was, like, practicing uh, the sermon. I was in my room, and I was standing against uh, my window, and I had, like, the laptop propped up, and my blinds were closed, and I just heard this, like, boom, against my window. I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And uh, I'll just pull that back. <laughs> and then I heard it again. I was like, boom. And I was like, what is going on out there? What is, it, what is attacking me? And so like, I pull up the blinds, and, um, and I just see this, this kookaburra sitting on the fence and just like staring at me, like, like all menace with all things uh, looking at me. And um, look, no kookaburras attacked me this morning, so I think we're in the clear, so I don't know what we make of that. Um, but it's, uh, but it's good to be here. It's always good to open up God's Word uh, with you all. Um, and particularly thanks for everyone for your feedback regarding uh, the move uh, to, to Balmain High. Um, look, as the news settles in, um, I hope that today that this sermon gives you some excitement for this new ex- season. Um, and even a renewed sense of further trusting into God uh, in this move. Um, I imagine that a lot of us uh, have had this thought, well, like, you know, I kind of just, I w- kind of wanted things to be normal for a while. Um, you know, we're slowly re-emerging into uh, normal life as a country and normal patterns of socializing and having fun and going out. And, um, and th- it's fair to say that there's, there's a sense of, like, normality is what we're craving right now. Uh, never before has normal been so, like, alluring and enticing um, like, it's, we're stoked now if, like, a venue is, like, full of people. Like, when have we ever thought of that before? You know, for, like, go to a cafe and there's, like, a 30-minute wait. We're like, nah, come on, let's make it 45. Let's go, people. Maybe not that far. Maybe that's just me. But things being normal is kind of cool right now. And look, as we consider our lives, if you're a follower of Jesus, the danger for us, maybe more than ever, is to go along with this sense of normality. And just cruise. And as we're confronted by today's passage, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what we believe, uh, what we see is that the the idea of the normal Christian life is anything but normal to the world. The normal Christian life is radical to the world. And the question for us, whether we follow Jesus or not, is 
is this radical life worth it? Could the Christian life truly be this blessed life? You know, I think it's, it's fair to say that, uh, that a big idea in our culture currently is that the blessed life is all about fulfilling ourselves as individuals and living uh, the idea of this authentic self. Um, I saw this play out in a movie that Jacob and I saw the other week. Uh, we used our Discover vouchers. Get on them. They're great. Um, but we saw this movie called Nobody, which uh, stars uh, Bob Odenkirk from Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, if you know those kind of ones. Uh, if you haven't, he often plays kind of like Weasley, but like flawed, but lovable type characters. Um, but this movie was produced by the, the same guy as the John Wick series, if you have any idea of those films. Uh, and if you don't, just basically just think of like violence and dial it up by like a thousand, like that's John Wick. Um, but uh, the basic idea of this movie is that uh, there's nobody of a weak, sullen man untaps his dormant true self. Um, and that's basically just you know, him rediscovering his joy in life, which is hurting people, essentially, is what it is. Um, bad people, to be fair, but it's, but it's framed in this way as you watch it. It's like, ah, you know, like, finally, finally he gets to just be himself. Um, uh, all his issues in parenting and marriage, in his work, they all kind of are solved through living out and fulfilling his personal desires, which is violence, it turns out. Uh, but it's, it's, it's currently the norm in our culture, isn't it? That unless you find your true self, your true identity, your life won't be this blessed life. But here's the thing. You know, even as the, the movie Nobody framed this discovery to be a good thing, and it's you know, ridiculous in how it's set up, the result is destruction. If you take a step back, although he's living out his desires, a lot of bad stuff happens. A lot of people die. Now, of course, this is you know, a very extreme, ludicrous example, uh, very different from our day-to-day -day lives. But the promise of living for a life purely about being authentic to you, our wants, our needs, our desires, is one that will end in conflict with others. If our wants and our needs and our desires are to be our primary goal, we're most likely going to, to clash with someone else's wants, needs, and desires. And this isn't a blessed life. It's a life of conflict. Um, I think I have flipped around a, a page. I'm going to go this way and go back. <laughs> but it is a life of conflict, and primarily it's a life of conflict with God. And so what our passage today shows us is that Jesus redefines this blessed life. And it's far from what culture has to say. It's far from the normal ideals of living out this self. It's far from the normal allure of power or of fame and prestige. It's far from the normal attraction of wealth and possessions. And so I'm going to pray for us as we look at this passage that God will help us to understand what His call for us in our life and what His will is. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank You so much for Your goodness. Thank you for this gospel that we can read now. Thank you for the truths in this passage. Help it direct us in our lives. Father, we pray that we would fall deeper in love with you and how you've worked in our lives. Father, we ask for you for great understanding now that we might live truly according to your will and seek great reward from it.
Amen. So let's set the scene of this radical life that is called the Beatitudes. Um, we're kicking off in, in sentence one. It'll come up. Um, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is the scene. And, and at this stage, uh, Jesus is well and truly into his ministry. And he's preaching on this idea of the kingdom of heaven. He is preaching of the coming of the kingdom. He's teaching the way of his kingdom. And he's demonstrating the purpose and the power of this kingdom by healing the sick. This kingdom which he is the reigning king. And this part of scripture from here in the next three chapters is the Sermon on the Mount. He's primarily teaching his disciples, uh, those who are following Jesus, but also those who are just kind of hanging around with him in this crowd. Uh, now, there isn't much uh, certainty about, about like, where this mountainside, where this mount was, but for about 1,600 years, it's been traditionally considered to be Mount Eremos. It'll come up on the screen, uh, which looks out at the Sea of Galilee. Um, is it there, Phoebes? Maybe it is. Oh, there it is. Um, not a bad spot. Jesus knows where to do a great sermon. Um, but wherever this sermon happened, some of the most profound thoughts in history were shared. So influential and radical that this series of teaching has scholars and artists and leaders use it for inspiration, as Jez said before. You know, one influential neuroscientist and speaker, Abjit Naskar, um, says this about the sermon. He says, The influence of the Sermon on the Mount is truly past reckoning. Any rational human being with a conscientious mind is bound to be influenced by its exuberant content, regardless of religious background. Niskar, a secular observer, can reflect and consider this part of Scripture to be one of the most profound pieces of, of writing in human history. It's made its way into modern ethics and morality. Uh, another influential speaker and leader, a U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, had this to say as well. He says, I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. And as profound as this part of Scripture is, it's really important not to minimize it to just wisdom and ethics. Jesus is confronting the world with a way of living that is counter to what they were experiencing in his time. Jesus is telling of a new age, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, and how to enter it. And here we have these Beatitudes, uh, which are a foretaste and a directive of what is to come with this kingdom and how to live it out now. And if you're kind of wondering why do we call them the Beatitudes, well, this comes from a, a rough Latin translation of, of Beatus, which means blessed. Um, so what we have is the Beatitudes from that. And when it comes to the word blessed, uh, there are different uses of the word. And here in, in this context, it's more along the, the lines of fortunate. Blessed in this usage is about approval of life, to be approved and to find approval, and it's fortunate to have done so. We're not going to go through all of them today in depth. We're going to skip a couple. But we will get a flavor of what this radical life looks like and its worthiness. So we're going to just navigate through uh, these Beatitudes. And, and the first one that comes up is crucial to understand because it unlocks the rest. And you may have picked up the pattern and it was read out before. 
uh, there's an, an action or a characteristic suggested as blessed and an outcome of that action. Have a look at the first one. Sentence three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, this first beatitude, it sets the tone, the scene, the agenda for the rest. Jesus is giving a radical idea that you are blessed when you understand the reality of your spiritual poverty before God. How fortunate you are to understand that. Uh, The crucial idea of being poor in spirit is of spiritual bankruptcy. That when we stand before God and consider our lives, we have absolutely nothing to offer Him. He isn't saying poor in spirit is to be downcast or financially poor. He's saying that the idea of earning your way to God has no place. It isn't even a thing when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. If we think about this, it would have been quite radical for the Jewish people listening here who have considered their lives following the law of Moses as God's people to be enough for them to enter heaven. But Jesus is giving a different and radical new way. And this is the core of why Jesus came and the core of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, that we have nothing to bring. We're as desperate and in need as someone drowning at sea. We can bring nothing but only raise our hands and help. And this understanding unlocks the rest because no matter what we do, it's only by God's grace we are brought into the kingdom. Our works don't bring us to God. And so this first beatitude sets a tone and flows into the next. Read with me, sentence four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here again, Jesus gives quite a radical idea that the Christian norm is to be mourning and that that will result in comfort. Um, Who here knows of like any business or like movement that has started with saying, you need to mourn or be depressed first, and then you're like, you'll get great stuff. That's, that's like the anti-marketing of our time, right? Um, like, who does that? You, you can imagine like, blessed are you when you buy our new iPhone, weeping. It's like, ah, it doesn't quite have that, you know, tone to it. But what Jesus is saying is that mourning is an understanding of the weight of our sin. We mourn our sin before God. We are wounded with the self-awareness of who we are before God. We mourn because there's an understanding that we aren't perfect. Because we understand not only our relational distance from God, but we see it all over the world. We see this collective distancing from God and we mourn with others over tragedies and injustices that we see scattered throughout this earth. And so we weep as Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus and felt the pain of this world. And though Jesus didn't need to mourn his sin because he had none, we mourn as we consider the pain of God's God as humanity. I mean, even as we consider Anzac Day uh, today and the loss of countless lives to wars, though those wars have ended, the impact lingers on and we remember. But here's the thing. The gospel does this amazing thing. We're not left there. Because though we frequently mourn the, the sin still in our lives and around us, there is comfort before us in the kingdom of heaven. Christians live with deep joy in the gospel and are comforted that this life isn't all there is. Better yet, like what ahead is amazing. And so Christians have this like radical dualite reality and understanding of their sin, um, 
but also the comfort that God brings in His saving grace. This saving grace of Jesus dying on our behalf to take the punishment away. And these first two Beatitudes give us the reality of our place. And what follows are further characteristics of of a Christian norm that is radical to the world. So read with me sentence 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Now this one is is extremely counter to our culture, isn't it? Like our culture has an allergic reaction to, uh, to meekness. Culture says we are to do what we want, grab what we can, and be the strongest, and that will be kind of the most blessed life. But to be meek isn't to be weak or a pushover, as many people consider it. You know, often people consider it like a, a Ned Flanders type character, allowing people to walk all over you, and I don't think that's quite the idea here. The biblical definition of meek, as, as Don Carson, a theologian, puts it, is this. It is a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. To be meek as Jesus is to consider the benefit of others more than yourself. Consider this. The Bible describes Jesus as fully God, fully man. That for all time that he has been with God in a triune relationship of deep intimacy, and he gives it up for us in order that we might come back into relationship with him. The meekness of Jesus humbly taking the cross to Golgotha is, considered, uh, is considering us before himself. Meekness is very Christ-like. But I wonder as we consider it, is it a characteristic that we identify with or really even aspire to? Does meekness like repel you? Does it repel you because of, it minimizes your aspirations and your goals? Does being meek just feel unimpressive? It's challenging for us to consider this in a world that says we must be impressive. You know, from a young age, we're asked this question, what do you want to be when you're older? Have you ever heard a child say like, I want to be unimpressive? Like, no kid says that. You know, I know this for myself. This is a constant battle in my head, in my heart, considering my life being of some significant use. And look, while it's not bad to be of significant use to the world, this shouldn't be our primary uh, goal of what we aspire to. The Christian norm is to be meek, and this is radically different to what the world says. Uh, Tolkien illustrated this wonderfully in The Lord of the Rings. Um, It wasn't the powerful men, the beautiful elves, the mighty dwarves, who were given the responsibility of taking the ring to Mordor. No, it was a hobbit. A meek, small, fairly unimpressive race. Tolkien knew Christian meekness was an admirable quality to be in display. And what's the outcome of this? Well, the meek will inherit the earth. That is, will enter eternity with Jesus. They will build God's kingdom and enter it. And I wonder again, if you were to look at your goals, how do they align with the meekness of pursuing the kingdom of heaven? Are they aligned with God's kingdom, or are they more aligned with building up your own legacy? If we're flat out trying to achieve and achieve and achieve, the comfort here is that you don't need to. Instead, you will find a blessed life in considering others before yourself. But let's continue on. Sentence six. 
Blessed are those who, uh, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Not only is Jesus saying we ought to live a life of righteousness, but the blessing that for those who do, that they will be satisfied. This again is radically different from what our culture says, that we ought to be satisfied with like gadgets, pornography, money, and more money, and some more money, and more money on that. And this isn't, it's just, like as Jesus is presenting, it's not the laborious way of righteousness that we just kind of often see displayed in, in a bunch of things. You know, sometimes the case that, that a righteous character in a, in a show or a movie or, or a book, uh, kind of like the prudes, they're like the frustrated ones who, who end up turning be, like, to be the evil character, like the, prince, uh, the priest sorry, in uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like nobody likes that. Nobody wants that. But the promise of being satisfied by righteousness is, is scattered throughout Scripture. The satisfaction of living God's way will quench our thirst because it's the way we were designed. Isaiah 58, sentence 11 says this, And the Lord will guide you continually and will satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. You know, I saw uh, this desire pretty clearly over a decade ago. A few of you may have heard this before. Um, but I, when I was 20, I was a part of a team that went over to India uh, to teach these short Bible courses um, to leaders and ministers um, in the southern parts of India. And I was teaching on the Book of Romans uh, in a short course, and we were kind of splitting up into groups of 15 or 20. And the men that were in my group, they ranged from, from, from 20 to kind of in their 60s. Um, and here they were, many of these men tra who have traveled days to get to this conference, sitting there and listening to this 20-year-old teaching them the Bible. Now, this isn't anything to say about, like, my ability. I was, quite frankly, mediocre at best. But these men, some of whom were, had been in ministry longer than I had lived, sat there hungry to know more about God, even from this young guy. They sat hungry so that they could live for him more and, that, and take that hunger and that thirst back into their own churches. They didn't care that I was 20. They were humble and gentle, and they had this amazing thirst to be more like Jesus. I wonder for us, when did we last truly hunger to be righteous? I'd imagine that some of us have had this thought that either, you know, we've rocked up here, you know, in, in weeks past or even today, and you've had this thought, well, I've, I've gone as far as I want to go. Now, I don't want to press in any further. Like, I'm pretty comfortable I've got my life together. I've got a good job, good family. I'm kind of okay with my relationship with God. That's doing all right, you know. I've got a few kind of sin issues, but I'm just I'm fine with that for now. Uh, so I think I'm just going to like chill. If you identify with with some of that, well, perhaps can I encourage you to go back to that first beatitude? Understand where you are before God, and reconsider the love of living His way. Because our level of righteousness is so much lower than we consider it to be. But also, as, as this beatitude says, to trust Jesus when he says that living according to his way will satisfy. There's faith needed to, to uh, hear, to listen to the creator of the universe, who says that this way will bring satisfaction. 
for your cravings. And that maybe He knew His best. Sin may be enticing, but it isn't life-giving. It's like putting Gatorade in your car for fuel. It's just like it's the wrong stuff and it's going to cause harm. Jesus says getting rid of sin in your life will bring about deep change and a quenching of your thirst. We're in the home stretch here, so let's kick on. We're carrying through. Sentence 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who are peacemakers are identified as part of God's family, as sons of God. And to be a peacemaker here is to resolve conflict. It's to provide a listening ear, empathetic ears, to truly hear someone and understand and try to resolve. I think we can agree that, that what we need is, in our culture particularly, more than ever, is, is peacemakers. We can see this growing tension between kind of the, uh, the right and the left side of, po- of the political spectrum. We see it plastered over social media, in the news, every day. But here's the thing with a peacemaker. Uh, being one isn't a passive role. It's an active one, and it's often a thankless one, where you take the hit for the sake of others. And the challenge for us in this time is to live so radically that as heated debates rise, Christians are active in resolving conflicts. That we're identified and marked as reconcilers and peacemakers. Uh, But sometimes, you know, we're given an alternate way of living. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a leader at work um, who wanted to kind of uh, show what he thought was a great example of leadership. Well, he tried to. Um... And he asked me if I had read uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, uh, a Chinese general in 500 BC. I said I hadn't. And uh, he began to then tell me this story uh, where Sun Tzu was, was challenged by a warlord to prove his famous war tactics, to train like 180 women um, from the warlord's palace and, and, and bring them into like orderly company. And among the women were two of the warlord's uh, favorite concubines, so what he did was he divided the women into two groups and he put a concubine in command of each. He then set the, these, these women uh, a simple drill and he made sure that they understood what to do. However, when he started ordering them to, to perform this drill, the women, they burst out in laughter. They, 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 they found it funny. And so what he did was <laughs> he ordered the two concubines beheaded as an example of the rest of the company. And so then, from then on, the women, the rest who were still alive, didn't utter a single sound, and they did the drill as exactly as commanded. And as the story finished, I was like, cool, 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 cool. That's a, that's a terrible way of leading. You know? That is like the opposite of what the call of the Christian is, to engage with others. Followers of Jesus are to be peacemakers and not abuse power. There might be conflict at work, and you know, metaphorically cutting off the head of someone isn't the way of Jesus. Consider Jesus, the the Prince of Peace, reconciling us to God through laying his life down so that the wrath of God will come to him and not to us. Even as as Peter attacks Jesus in defense of uh, of, of the guards and the servants trying to take him away, Jesus says, put your sword away. I've got my mission to continue ahead. Look, I wonder if we, when we consider ourselves as peacemakers, if We tend to fuel conflict through gossip rather than end it. Do we seek the good of others or 
Or do we avoid it? Do we put ourselves in the firing line so that might be conflict resolved? How about your marriage? Do you tend towards escalating an argument or bringing about peace? Being a peacemaker like Jesus will mean stepping into situations where you aren't at fault, and yet you receive some secondhand smoke of the situation for the benefit of others. We're to be peacemakers. And finally, in this radical way of living, this last beatitude, which will kind of bring a conclusion to the whole idea of what this radical life looks like, it's this. Sentence 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The normal Christian life is a radical one to the world. We haven't even covered all of the Beatitudes. But with it comes the potential for you and I to be persecuted for, for living it out. That's crazy, right? It's crazy that this is even considered blessed. But this life, if we're living as God intended, will bring resistance. This way offers peace, comfort, satisfaction, joy, a family. Well, saying at the same time, it will bring persecution. People will dislike you. And it's not to be, only to be expected, but weirdly, it's, it's a blessing if it happens to you. What kind of worldview offers this? And for people to still want to do it. You know, I've been a Christian for, for 20 years, um, and I read this, and I still want Jesus because he's that good. And in my experience, I, I can see that, and I'm certain that the reward that his head is, his head is promised here by Jesus will be unbelievably good. You know, there are Christians dying for the name of Jesus throughout the world because they have experienced this blessed life. So look, unless we see these Beatitudes as, as part of this idea of the kingdom of heaven here and now, but the fullness still to come, we won't understand them for what they are. Collectively, they are an announcement of how fortunate people are who already follow Jesus and the way of his kingdom. And we might say, blessed, blessed, and how fortunate you are to have received the kingdom power at work within you. For you will inherit the kingdom of heaven with all its infinite pleasures forever. The Beatitudes are announcements that people like this are blessed, are very fortunate. The Beatitudes are the normal for the Christian life, but they are radical to the world. But that's not all. These, these Beatitudes are also an invitation to become this kind of radical person. You could be like one of his disciples if you're not currently a follower of Jesus, sitting at his feet and hearing him say, oh, how fortunate you are. How fortunate you are to be chosen by God. To have your eyes open, to be drawn to the Savior, to be poor and mourning and weak and hungry and merciful and pure and peaceable. Rejoice, give thanks. You're this kind of person. For it's not your own doing, but it's the work of God in you. How fortunate you are. If you're not a follower of Jesus here, this is the invitation. But for those of us who are, consider this. As we look at these Beatitudes, 
Can you imagine if everyone here lived them out to perfection? Can you like imagine that kind of community? This loving, peaceful, fervent church community who are just like all in when it comes to following Jesus. That's pretty cool to think about, right? Can you imagine then this, the loving impact that it'll have around those around us? Now, we'll never live these Beatitudes out to perfection. But what if each week we stepped closer to living this way? What if this move to Balmain High would help us with all these resourcing and input into church life grow more and more into this type of community where the norm is a radical life in line with God's will? That would be a light to Sydney in this. E. Stanley Jones, a missionary throughout India, uh, has this challenge regarding the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, uh, The Sermon on the Mount seems dangerous. It challenges the whole underlying conception on which modern society is built. It will replace it by a new conception, animate it with a new motive, and turn it towards a new goal. Look, our prayer should be that as we live this out, our lives would be light to Sydney, challenging and pointing people towards this true way. A normal Christian life is a radical one to the world. And so I'm not sure how Bama in High will end up, I have a kind of a nervous excitement about it um, myself. I'm not sure what will happen in a year's time or more. But what I am sure about is this. So if we live out these Beatitudes as a community, the norms of the Christian life, we will be very fortunate indeed. And even if it gets hard, even if there are disappointments, there is comfort and there is reward waiting for us in heaven. That's how we pray that we'll be these people who live this out for the glory of God. You pray with me. Father, thank you so much for these words that you've given us. We pray that your spirit would be moving and challenging us to shaping us to be more like Jesus. Father, help us to be a gospel community that reflects this way of living, this radical life. Help us to understand more and more your will and your desire for us. And help us, Father, right now where we're at. Whether if we're struggling with sin and, and we need to, to learn and know or pursuing righteousness will bring satisfaction. That if we are downcast, that there is comfort ahead. That if we're weary, that coming to you, that you will help us. Lord, give us strength, give us courage to live this out in a world that may disagree. Help us to be your disciples and lights in this world. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen.